0: And I think I'm still going to do that because I have to uh, uh, maybe give my... I'm supposed to have... Uh, two weeks from tomorrow is when pre-trip starts. I'm doing a presentation. I'm supposed to have everything into Tommy by next Monday morning so that they can put it on the disc. And I'm not where I thought I would be. I'm close. And if I have a really good day tomorrow, then... That may ch- change a few things, but I'm just sort of uh, feeling the pressure from different directions. So, uh, and also tonight, I think that we're, we're finishing the um, observation section, wrap that up tonight. And that means that it's a good place to take a break and then come back from, um, and I'm, that may be different from what I said last time, but let me see, that would give us, yeah, that would give us uh, the 8th, the 15th, and the 22nd of December to do, um, that was the day I decided we would we, we'd come back and then we'd have the 8th, is that right, the 8th? Yeah, the 8th, the 15th, and the 22nd would be three sections on interpretation. Now, we'll still do some when we come back, when I get back from Kiev in early February but that way we get most of the interpretations material covered in three consecutive in three consecutive weeks. So let's just do it that way. We'll finish applic- uh, I mean observation to this this evening. We'll have the next two Sundays off, then we'll come back and meet three Sundays, 8th, 15th, and 22nd, to cover interpretation. Then we'll have almost the then we'll have all of January off because I'll be in Kiev for some of that, and then we will resume in February to do the last part of interpretation and application. Okay, does that make sense? I'm glad it makes sense to somebody. (laughs) All right, let's pray, and then we will get into uh, the text a little bit. Father, thank you for this opportunity we have to to study, to reflect upon your word, to reflect upon how to think about your word, how to read it more precisely, to come to understand it, to research, and to think about the uh, what you have said and how you have said it. And Father, we pray that you'd guide and direct us in, in our assignments and in our thinking. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, what I want to do tonight is I want to start off at Acts 1-8, so let's go ahead and turn to Acts one um, you know, but I want to look at the textbook and especially going just to go over a few things in terms of the the reading for this time in chapter 19 uh, 2021 20, things that are emphasized, things that are repeated, things that are related. things that are alike and unlike. okay, five things and then, uh, we'll do some, some work in Acts 1-8 and in, in Mark. We'll work on that from ne- for 30 minutes, and then we'll take about, um, or about 25 minutes. Then we'll take a little longer break, because I want you to read through the next section, which is, uh, or the passage, Mark 11-27-12-44, and do some initial observation and work on that, And then we'll come back and talk about it in the second half. Okay. Um, Last time, the assignment was to read through uh, the Hendricks material starting on uh, in chapter 19. And chapter 19, he talks about, starts this section in talking about different things to look for within a section of Scripture. And chapter 19 focuses on things that are emphasized. And as you've heard me say many times, when we... Read through the, when we think about how the scripture was originally written in a time when everything was written by hand, by a scribe, and you didn't have things such as boldface or underlining, you didn't have, they didn't have paragraph indentation, they didn't have footnotes, they didn't do a lot of the things that we do today to bring out an, an emphasis on certain things. They did this through style. They did it in how it was written. They did it through the use of vocabulary. They did it through sentence structure. Uh... Both Hebrew and Greek are um, are languages that are that are inflected, unlike English. English, you pretty much are confined to a certain word order for the sentence to make sense. But in Greek, for example, you have your your basically your four cases. Your nominative case identifies the subject of the verb. Your um, uh, uh, genitive indicates ownership, possession, your accusative case indicates the direct object, and your dative case indicates the indirect object. Now, in English, you would put subject first, then the verb, then usually your indirect object, and then your direct object, and sometimes you can flip those. In Greek, it doesn't matter what the word order is. You can put the verb first, then the indirect object, and then the subject, and then the direct object or you can put the direct object first and then the then the subject and then the verb and then the indirect object because these parts of speech these elements within the sentence are indicated by the case of the noun whether it's nominative genitive or accusative so we look we don't have those kind of endings in English so if you look at a sentence you look <coughs> you look for placement to determine Who's the sub, where the subject is and where the object is and and that sort of thing. If you've studied foreign languages, uh, Spanish is an inflected language, Latin's an inflected language, it's the same kind of a thing. So instead of um, always sort of having to put things in a certain order for, to identify the, the components of the sentence, you can move those components around for emphasis. So if you don't want to emphasize the verb, uh, you can put that at the end, and you can throw the, and if you want to emphasize the, the object, the direct object, you can throw that at the beginning. Uh, sometimes uh, if, you're, if you're just using a pronoun like he he said, which in, <clears throat> in, um, um, in Greek would be uh, uh, legay, um, you have a, a third-person singular ending, you don't have to put a pronoun there. You don't have to indicate, uh, the, the he. Just, just the verb itself means he said. But if you put the pronoun there also, then that shows that the writer really is emphasizing something about the, the, the person who is speaking. Okay? So that's how they would bring out things for, uh, for emphasis, another way in which they would bring out things for emphasis would be how much space uh, might be uh, apportioned to to something, and um, you know, Hendricks gives the example. I thought some of you who've really been paying attention to and gone th- gone through a lot of studies with me would find some of the illustrations that he used in the ch- chapter somewhat familiar. One that I hadn't run across, or statistic I hadn't run across, was what he uses on page. Uh, my book, 144, that Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew has 1,062 verses. And of those 1,062 verses, 342 of them are giving discourses from the Lord. So that's a third of the space in Matthew is given to recording direct teaching from the Lord. And that's huge. That's an emphasis in Matthew. And one of his emphases is what exactly the Lord taught less so than narrative so uh he has a larger percentage of the total amount of space in matthew given to um i mean he has greater space given to to the words of our lord than any of the other gospels percentage wise so that's that's an interesting thing to note in terms of is, of emphasis uh other places ephesians is very well known for this kind of a structure in Ephesians one through four, it's uh, usually what you'll read is like Hendricks will say that's doctrinal. One of the things that that you will rec- you will see as you study is in, in what I would call sort of traditional Christian literature, they will use the term doctrinal in a way that's a little different from the way we use it, and that is a li- might be a little confusing. They use doctrine to refer more to Uh, sort of theological instruction as opposed to application and so but that's not how we use it we get the the way in which we use the word doctrine is much like how the military uses the the word doctrine which is not in terms of talking about some sort of uh, 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 theologically abstract or philosophically abstract principles it, it, it is talking about in, uh, instruction or policy that goes from, the, from the, its inception in terms of perhaps theoretical thought all the way to how something is finally applied in the nuts and bolts of the machinery on the battlefield in terms of its application. So it's not just talking about uh, the way a lot of uh, theologians use the word doctrine is just to refer to theology, Okay? But, but in the way we use it, we refer to it, use it to describe not only the theology, but also application, because we don't see a a disjunction between that. That's how the military uses the word, uh, the word doctrine. And they'll have various, uh, doctrine, um, you know, military doctrine related to, uh, battlefield application. And, and for example, how to uh, handle I- IEDs in um, in Afghanistan it 's going to relate to the armament of, of various uh, uh, vehicles and it 's going to start off from the very inception with the engineering, the design, and it 'll start off with with looking at how much armor needs to be on the on the vehicles. And all of this is in the design or, or the, the, theoretical phase. And then it, but it works itself all the way down to how it actually functions and operates in a battlefield scenario in, in, on the ground in Afghanistan. So it's not only talking about sort of the, what we might call the abstract principles, but it also how it works in real life. Now that's, that's how we use the word doctrine. That is not how a lot of people use the word doctrine. So when Hendricks is writing here, on, uh, he says, in the epistles of Paul, we frequently find a section of doctrine followed by a section of practical application. See how he makes a distinction? And I always resisted that, mostly because of the background, but it, it's as if doctrine isn't practical. And see, that, that is a, that, that's a real attack on on doctrine because the word doctrine as we as we get it in English from the King James that all scripture is breathed out by God is profitable for doctrine. A doctrine includes its teaching. It's just the word there in Greek, didaskalos, meaning instruction. And instruction isn't just theoretical or, or theological. It's how to do things and why you do things the way that you do them. So anyway. Ephesians 1 through 3 talks about what God has done for us. It talks about the plan of God in chapter 1. It talks specifically about salvation in chapter 2. And in chapter 3, it gets into um, <clears throat> some of the aspects related to the body of Christ. Then the implications of that is what's covered in chapters 4 through 6. So you see, again, there's a... Um, you know, a pattern there in terms of, of emphasis. Another way that things are emphasized is clear statement of purpose. Uh, he cites John 20:30. These are written that you might know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing you might have life in his name. So you have clear statements uh, of purpose. He um, also looks at, at Proverbs in the in opening uh, verses of Proverbs 1, 2 through 6, which talk about, the purpose of proverbs to know wisdom and instruction to discern the sayings of understanding to receive instruction and in wise behavior etc. This all gives purpose, so uh, that's important. Another way in which uh, <clears throat> uh, in which emphasis is giving is in order order, and that order can be given in different ways. Um, one one way it, he gives an illustration from Luke in Luke six. Uh, 14 to 16, where Luke records the disciples, and he and and uh, Hendrick says, look at the order starts off Peter and Andrew, James and John. Now, what's significant about the about those? Just right off the bat, anything strike you there? They're two sets of brothers, and uh, Peter, James, and John are the closest of the disciples to Jesus. So he starts with the ones who are. Uh, more known and who are closer to the Lord and who are the earliest ones that we know of that were called to be disciples. So it goes on, James and John, Philip and Bartholomew, Matthew and Thomas, James the son of Alphaeus, Simon the zealot, Judas the son of James, and Judas Iscariot. Who's the last one mentioned? Judas Iscariot. So there, the, there seems to be an order there from those who were closest to the Lord and the most intimate with him to the one who is furthest away from him Uh, you also look for things in terms of uh, of movement in a list moving from the greater to the lesser from the lesser to the greater uh, and and things like that And he gives an illustration then from acts 1 8 so if we look at Acts 1-8, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my, wit- and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria to the uttermost parts of the earth. What do you see there in terms of order? The location of the movement. Yeah, there's, there's clear movement in the location from Jerusalem, which is where they are. To Judea and Samaria, which is the actually just as a side note, that's the historical name for for most of the land of Israel. Uh, today we call we don't call it Samaria or Judea because that's most of that is what's within what is called for the for many wrong reasons the West Bank. Uh, the West Bank was a manufactured name that occurred once. Uh, Jordan conquered uh, in 1948. Seized land west of the Jordan River. Uh, before that, uh, Jordan was known as TransJordan. That's the land across the Jordan. But once once uh, they captured and and illegally took this land west of the Jordan, and no nation on earth recognized their right to that, that land uh, east uh, west of the Jordan. Uh, but once they had land west of the Jordan, they couldn't call themselves Transjordan anymore because they were claiming land on both sides, so they referred to themselves simply as Jordan. That's when they changed their name to the uh, Kingdom of Jordan. And when they took land on the west side of the Jordan, they called it the West Bank. West Bank. So when we use the term West Bank today, we're, we're, you know, I, I got in a discussion with a with a, uh, an archaeologist who was in, in a difficult situation because he was sending out his letter to dealing with Palestinians and Arabs and Christians and everybody, and he used politically correct terms. And I challenged him. I said, "You can't do that." He said, "Well, I don't want to get into politics." I said, "Every term, whether you call it West Bank or Sumerian Judea." you're buying into a political framework. There's no neutral terminology here unless you just want to stick with historical terminology, which is what you should do, which is the biblical terminology. So Judea and Samaria, Samaria is the area north of Jerusalem and Judea is the area south of Jerusalem. So you're working out from Jerusalem and then to the uttermost part of the earth. So there's order there. Um, is there any other order of progression in the verse? Yeah, first, you receive power, then you will be my witnesses. So there's a, there's an order there. Yeah, but uh, yeah, and you, you, that's sort of implied there, um, but it's not nece- it's not stated. I mean, once you get out of Israel, but you you could you still have Jewish communities in the diaspora that are spread everywhere. Okay, chapter twenty talks about things that are repeated. Things that are repeated gives examples like a very famous one is Psalm 136. If you've ever read that, every, there's a statement of a line, and then it says, "For the uh, God's love endures forever." Then there's another statement, and then God's love endures forever. And this was this was written to be sung antiphonally, uh, as the choir would sing one one line, then the congregation would repeat back, "His love endures forever." And so you have uh, uh, 26 times there's a repetition of the phrase, his love endures forever. Well, what does that tell you? What's the psalmist trying to say? His love endures forever. So emphasis communicates, uh, re- or repetition emphasizes something. You also have examples like in Hebrews 11, uh, by faith Adam, by faith Noah, by faith Abraham, by faith... And after you've read that about f- 15 times, you understand that that's something that... Um, the writers uh, emphasizing. Also, you, you can see this in terms of um, this isn't repetition. This is more back in the first chapter an example in proportion. In Genesis one to eleven, you cover Adam and and Noah, and you cover about two thousand years of history. And then from Genesis twelve to Genesis forty. You cover four basic characters, Abraham, then Isaac, then Jacob, and then Joseph, and it covers a period of about 400 years. So where's the, where's the significance in the book of Genesis? It's on, you know, all of a sudden there's a slowing down looking at four, uh, four people over a period of about 400 years. Other things to look for is, you know, patterns that are repeated, things things of that nature. Uh, chapter 21, he talks about things that are related, uh, movement from either the whole to the parts where you're talking about something broad in general down to something specific. He gives an illustration from uh, Matthew 6, 1. Uh, beginning, be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. And then he moves from that general statement down into uh, three specific uh, areas of illustration, giving, praying, and then fasting. So there's a movement from the general to the specific uh, also, we have questions of, in uh, other ways, question and answer or dialogue, other ways to look at how things are related, uh, as well as cause and effect. Chapter 22 talks about things that are alike and things that are unalike, and this brings in figures of speech, similes, and metaphors. A simile is when you compare, one, both of them are comparing one thing to another to bring out uh, some sort of emphasis. For example, uh, the leaders of congregations are called shepherds. But what does a leader of a congregation have to do with a shepherd? What's the point of commonality? There are lots of things that a shepherd does with sheep, and there are a lot of, uh, but not all of them apply um, Jean brown you all know gene gene has has had sheep done a lot of i've done some sheep farming but it's really interesting to talk to somebody who has dealt with sheep because there are a lot of things they have to do because sheep are very very stupid and a shepherd has to take care of a lot of things he has to pick you know go in there and look for fleas and parasites and you know all kinds of things you really you know that aren't really very nice and, uh, but he, but if the shepherd isn't taking care of all of those things, you know, everything from cavity searches to whatnot, but none of that applies to what a pastor does, okay? So there's only one area there and that has to do with leading sheep to food and making sure they have the right diet and protecting them from, from enemies from the outside. So the scripture doesn't when it, scripture says the leader of a congregation is like a shepherd it's not in every category it's just one uh one thing. Um, you have statements like the fact that uh, uh you know salvation wipes away our sins so that we're white as snow. So that that restricts the comparison. Not every characteristic of snow would apply. It's just one area where there's going to be a comparison. So sometimes it's important to, when there, you see a comparison, whether it's a stated comparison where like, the word like or as is used, or whether it's a, an implied comparison uh, where Jesus says, "I "'I am the vine, you are the branches.'" That's a, that's an implied comparison. Well, in what way is Jesus like a vine and in what way are we like branches? So you, that, you have to look at that. And one of the most important things I found very helpful in understanding uh, some of the things said in John 15 about uh, vines and branches was that there was a class, not a classmate of mine, but a guy who came through I think it was a couple of years after me from at Dallas um, wrote some exceptional articles on John 15 in the uh, that came out of the Dallas Journal in the in the 80s. And he act, before he went to seminary, he had his master's degree in viticulture from Texas A and M. So this guy had gone back and and studied and investigated all of the practices of uh, viticulture and and the growing of grapes and wines and the kinds of grapes and all these different f- facets uh, from writings in the first century and and that era to understand what those practices were and how they did it and then bringing that information to bear on understanding these things that Jesus is saying in John 15 because he's speaking to an audience who would have some understanding of that and so that really opens up the text. So understanding things like that are very uh, are very helpful. As <clears throat> so we have things that uh, similes, metaphors, things that are compared positively, things that are contrasted. And then another point that he brings out here is irony and even sarcasm, which is sometimes difficult to catch in a uh... In something that's being being written, okay, so you guys work through those chapters any any questions that you might have as a as a um, in response to that? Anybody have any questions? Yeah, Jeff what are the rules for um, when you're when you're trying to limit assembly, right? so right the pastor is like the shepherd, how did you come up with those limitations? You look at how the, how that is used in Scripture where you have specific statements given. Uh, for example, in um, John 20, uh, excuse me, John 21, when Jesus is talking to Peter and has that interchange, if you love me, you feed my sheep, and you can just look at, at the terms that are there. And how they're used looking at other passages or giving directives to pastors as to what they're supposed to do, that you usually in a because what you have with a figure of speech is a non-literal passage, it's using a figure of speech to communicate something, and you compare that to where you have um, other uses of the terms in a more straight literal usage. That's how you come up with it. And, and sometimes you don't have as much. Sometimes you just have to, you have to study. Um, you know, when you, a, a really fun passage on that. And I wish I could find this. I've had it in the past and I, I keep losing it. But somebody years ago, there was, there used to be people called it a, a magazine. It was like a Christian mad magazine. It was a real, um, a spoof type magazine called the Wittenberg door. And somebody drew a, a picture of the, uh, beloved woman in Song of Solomon. Okay? Where you, where, where you take each simile or each metaphor as if it's literal. Okay? You have dove's eyes behind your veil. So she's got these two little doves. Uh, your hair is like a flock of goats, so there's all these goats coming down off of her, off of her head. Um, your teeth are like a flock of shorn sheep, so she's got all these little shorn sheep in her mouth. Um, <clears throat> uh, your lips are like a strand of scarlet, so she just has a you know, scarlet thread for, for her lips. Uh, your temples behind your veil are like a piece of pomegranate. So she had these two pomegranate halves on her her temples. So it's a a hilarious picture, but it's really great tool for visualizing that how we, in everyday English, our language is loaded with metaphors and similes and idioms of that nature, but we've grown up with English as a first language, so our minds automatically filter those things, and it may be a figure of speech, but it's, and in that sense, it's not literal, but it has a literal meaning. It has a specific meaning so that it can't just mean whatever somebody wants it to mean. These non literal phrases have literal significance, have a specific, uh, specific meaning. So, um, you know, the one I like is your neck is like the Tower of David you know, rocky, bumpy, stony, you know, that just really... But that's not... The the point isn't what it looks like as something that is tall and symmetrical and uh, statuesque. So that's the point of the imagery. So it's important to go through and look at these things, and, and a lot of uh, metaphors and a lot of similes are things that you can look up... And you can say, okay, your temples are like a like a piece of pomegranate. Well, in what sense is it like pomegranate? Shape, size, color. What why would th- what what would be the point of comparison? It would be color, red like pomegranate. Temp- her temples were red like pomegranate. Um, th- things like that. So it's going through and looking at these. Uh, at these kinds of things. Okay. I'm going to take a couple of minutes just briefly to look at Acts 1-8 a little bit uh, for uh, observation, just as a review, because I'm going to give you a broader assignment here to begin during the break. Acts 1-8. It begins with a... With what? But. But. It begins with a conjunction. And And is this an independent sentence or is it uh part of a sentence in the in the new king james as i pointed out it has a period at the end of verse 7 but that's because a tendency for the translators was they tried to make every verse an independent sentence it's in the greek it's not it's part of uh what is said in verse 7 so the but throws you back when you're talking about and starting to investigate a verse there are many th- many things there that may say, you know, I just can't start in this verse. I have to go back to what precedes it. I have to go back. And so we read in verse 7, And he said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive. So, but is a contrast between the fact that you're not supposed to know certain things, and rather you're supposed to wait and receive power from the Holy Spirit. It's not for you to focus on uh, a calendar. But we have two more basic questions, and what would that be? In verse 7. They're really obvious, so you've already answered them, but I'm forcing you, you have to ask the question what are they? No. Who's them? Who's he? Okay, who's he and who are them? So that means you have to go further back in the context, and also he's speaking to he's speaking to somebody. So we have to understand something about the dialogue that's taking place here. Um, Verse six, we go back further. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, "So they ask a question, and he's answering the question." The question he's asking is, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he's saying, don't worry about the timing. He doesn't correct them, their understanding of a literal geopolitical kingdom, does he? he the only thing he's correcting them on is their concern about the timing. But what? how does verse 6 begin? Therefore. Therefore, what does that mean? Yeah, what's it there for? So you got to look. It's a conclusion of something. So that means we still can't get directly into Acts one eight because we're still being thrown back further in the context. So the therefore comes from something he said before, and this takes us back to verse four. Being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. So he's telling them to wait in Jerusalem. Well, doesn't that relate to Acts eight, where he says, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. So verse 5, he's saying, you shall be, ba- uh, that he's saying um, in verse, verse 4, uh, wait for the promise of the Father, which is stated in verse 5 to be this, the baptism by the Holy Spirit. Again, we're, we still haven't... The only identification we have for him is Lord in verse 6. So in order to answer that question and to understand something about the fact that he, they raised a question about restoring the kingdom of Israel, we have to go back even to verse 3, where we're told that at, that he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. So how what, what, had Je, what did Jesus teach them between the time of the resurrection and the time of, that he goes to heaven? He's giving them instruction on the kingdom of God. So after they've heard all of this instruction on the kingdom of God, What's their question? Is this the time? Okay, then, uh, but verse 3 is part of a sentence that goes back to verse 1. So, so as we work our way back, we have to look at the whole structure of this chapter in the broad perspective to drill down to understand Acts one so it starts off the former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and to teach. So, what what do we what do we see here? It's a continuation. It's a continuation of something because he talks about the former account. Now, this is one of the fun things that I, I like to do with with my logos, is that you have all. Kinds of ways in which you can highlight things, and I created a new little marker here for time. Though does it doesn't, I'm just playing with this. See it through the clock so far forward. I need to change that. It's in the other word, so you don't really see it. But it's a time statement, the former account. And so, what's the former account? Luke. Luke. It's a. It's the Gospel of Luke. And he wrote Luke to Theophilus as well. But if you're just reading Acts, you don't have a lot of background, what would be the next thing you would look up? Or the next question you would want to answer? Yeah, who's the I and who's Theophilus? So you could look up Theophilus. Where would you find out information about Theophilus? You go to your Bible dictionary. In some cases, a study Bible might have the answer, but you look that up in a a Bible dictionary. And he's continuing the same thing he was doing in in, in the Gospel of Luke, which is focusing on what Jesus uh, did and what Jesus taught. Okay, that gives you an idea of something to do. Now, what I want you to do, That gets you thinking a little bit. I want you to, during the break here, we're going to take about a 15-minute break, and I want you to look at Mark chapter 11. Mark 11, starting starting in verse 27. Then they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple... The chief priests, the scribes, and the elders came to him. Read from 27 through 1244. Now this is more narrative, but there's a lot of different things going on here. So obviously we're not going to drill down in, in in this like you would if we were just looking at one verse. Because I want you to look at the bird's eye view of what's happening in this Lengthy narrative here. We're looking at quite a number, uh, uh, quite a number of verses, but I want you to think in terms of structure, okay? So you can, I want you to read it. We'll take, it, we're gonna, like I said, 15 minute break. We'll come back about, uh, a few minutes before, uh, seven, and then we'll start talking about it. But, uh, and I'm gonna, and just jot down, have your notebook out and start jotting down things that you, that you notice and that you see. Okay. Any questions? Are you saying this is our break? Yeah. Yes, this is the break. (laughs) This is the break. You can get up, go get some water, go get some coffee, go to the bathroom, whatever. You have 15 minutes. Just read as much as you can and start writing some things down that, that you, uh, begin to see or things you want, think should be investigated, questions you might have, things like that. But look for patterns. Look for things that are repeated, things that are emphasized, things that are, uh, and how the structure is going, and then we'll start uh, to focus a little more on it.